This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. to share a bit about what we're up to on this adventure of church planting and to to share God's word with you this morning. So if you have Bibles this morning, uh, it'd be great if you could turn to John chapter 3. John's Gospel and John chapter 3. I'm going to read a passage of scripture that the Lord has really impressed on me since we began this church plant, some personal lessons that I've been learning that I'd love to share with you, and I pray uh, that God would speak to us as I do. So John chapter 3, verse 22 to 30, it says this, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized Now John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Let's just pray before we dive in. Father, I could do no better this morning than to pray those words of John the Baptist back to you. (laughs) Make Jesus greater in our hearts, in our affections, in this church, in this town. And Lord, may we become less. Lord, I pray that you would humble us with your love and with your grace this morning, and that as we Journey through this passage, Lord God, you would bring genuine change in our lives that we might become more like the Jesus that we love and that we want to see made famous in our day. In your name, amen. I don't know about you, but for as long as I can remember, I have desired greatness. Uh, If you'd asked me as a five-year-old, Owen, what do you want to be when you're grown up? 
I mean, we could all probably guess the list of things and go back in our minds to what we said, astronaut or cowboy or later on in my childhood, footballer, Premier League footballer, later on into my teens, rock star. One of these many things, a way in which the world defines greatness. And I have lived for as long as I can remember with that kind of primal desire within me to be great. Even as I was driving in through Cheltenham this morning, uh, the last time I was in Cheltenham, I think was about nearly 13 years ago, probably, and uh, I, I used to just get stuck in the one-way system and drive around the town centre. I don't know if that still exists, um, but that was my lasting memory of Cheltenham. But this morning, I had a much, a much more favourable experience, but as I drove in, you could just see everywhere the pursuit of greatness. As you see these great buildings, one of which we are in now, the pursuit of greatness in education and gaining knowledge, the pursuit of greatness in the science festival that's, that's going on, scientific discoveries and, and finding greatness in that field. Maybe here this morning, you are coming with a desire to be a great mum or a great dad or a great colleague at work or great in your career of choice or, or actually for some of us we carry ambitions that even outstrip where we are in life right now. We have this desire for greatness. And I want to ask the question this morning for the sake of my own soul and hopefully for the sake of us all, what does true greatness look like? What does it truly mean to be great? Is greatness attached, as our world says, to freedom to travel, to how many possessions we have, to size of the empire that we have built, to our huge influence? Is that how we measure the greatness of our lives this morning? You see, we're gathered here this morning, aren't we, to celebrate the most significant man the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth. And let me just remind you of some things about this man. The greatest man who we've been worshipping this morning, who's ever walked the face of this earth, worked in his dad's carpentry shop till he was 30 years old. He never travelled beyond a region the size of Wales. And he left behind him, as his great legacy, 11 stumbling men and a few loyal women. And yet we celebrate him as the great one 2,000 years later. Christ redefines greatness in our world. He redefines greatness as does his cousin, John the Baptist. You see, Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, verse 11, something which should catch our attention something that should show us the value of studying this man's words here. Jesus says of his cousin, John the Baptist, never has a man been born of a woman who is greater than John the Baptist. John defines for us greatness. And so this passage in which we see a window into John's life and ministry hopefully gives us a vision of greatness for our lives and of greatness for God first. See, I want to ask this morning, more than just your life, what would it mean for you to be a great church? Already I can taste, I can taste greatness among you, but it may not be what you naturally might think greatness is. 
What is greatness according to Jesus? What is greatness reflected in the life of John? And actually, even if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, I don't want to assume that every one of us has pledged our allegiance to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, my guess is that you've got a desire to be great. And here this morning, we get a window into what the God who created us says is is a great life, a life lived of great significance. And so listen in as we journey through John's words this morning. Bit of context to these words. We've got a scene of Jesus and his disciples out in the Judean countryside, and Jesus' disciples are baptizing. John, in another area, is baptizing with his disciples. And then there's a very strange verse. I don't know if you noticed it. In verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, you might think we've just gone from like being an astronaut and being great in our careers to ceremonial washing. What the heck is going on here? What, why, why is that in, in the text? Well, what was going on is that for the, the Jewish people, they desired to be great before God, to live lives of significance before God, to be clean and acceptable before God. And in their day and age, it was like there were three competing factions for saying for answering the question, how do we be right before God? There was the Jewish ceremonial washings. They would go through certain rituals in order to find cleansing before God. Then you have John the Baptist, this man who arrives on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is coming, get right with God. And he begins to baptize people, a sign of repentance, turning away from one way of living, preparing for the kingdom of God. And then John points the way to this this man, Jesus, claims to be the son of God, the savior of the world. And it seems by these verses, his disciples have started baptizing too. And just like in our world, bigger often means better, right? The size of your influence, the size of your organization, the size of the legacy you leave behind, the size of your bank account, that is what equals greatness. So in their world... They were tempted to measure the greatness of one's life by the size of one's following. And so John's disciples come to him in a panic. John, there's there's someone else who started a baptizing ministry over at a different place, and more people are going to him than to you. Through this passage then, into this context, John the Baptist replies, and I think, Shows us what true greatness looks like. Two things this morning. True greatness means being content with what God gives us. And true greatness means making much of Jesus Christ. True greatness, first of all, means being content with what God gives us. I was having a conversation with a guy who's joined our little church plant a few weeks ago, and he said something so profound. He said, in our world, we equate standard of life with quality of life. If you live a certain standard with a certain amount of possessions and a certain amount of individual autonomy, that therefore equals quality of life. You can measure someone's quality of life by their standard of life, and yet could it be that actually it's not about how much you have or earn or can accrue in your life, 
but about being content with God and in God and what he gives. We see it, don't we, in parts of the world that have a little standard of life, and yet we, are, we would be jealous of their quality of life. It's about finding rest in what you've got. John teaches us this. See, don't miss what's going on here. There is a backdrop in John's life of diminishing influence. Can you imagine reaching the stage where you're John the Baptist? And everyone's coming to you to listen to your message about the kingdom of God. And for one of John's disciples, those must have been like heady days. Like, wow, look, the whole world is coming. We are part of a movement that is going places. But before long, Jesus and his disciples begin to baptize more people. And his disciples come to him in a panic saying, John, your influence is diminishing. It's time to start the next ad campaign. It's time to, to get back uh, on the saddle, John. Let's do something. Let's, let's give ourselves to some kind of activity that can produce this machine so that we can once again be measurably great in the eyes of the world. I love this. John the Baptist is unshaken. They want to shake him into activity. Listen to what he says. First response to them, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. While they are trying to get an action plan for him, John is from him, he, he is unmovable because he has his feet firmly and contentedly planted in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. See, he, his soul is at rest in this. My life is not defined by my activity, but by my Father in heaven, who wisely and graciously gives what I need. And my greatness is not attached to my activity or to the size of my following, but to my being connected to the God who is sovereign and good. True greatness is finding contentment in God. And God-centeredness, that's why I love the name of your church, God-centeredness is the key to finding that contentment. It's like God's sovereignty and goodness, the truth that God reigns, that he rules, and the truth that God is kind and perfect and just. When you put those two things together, it's, it's like having... Two wings for the plane of our Christian life. Don't know when the last time you flew was. Uh, Andy and I were on a, a plane uh, coming back from Newcastle not long ago for an advanced uh, leaders get together. The network of churches uh, we're connected with. When we came into land, uh, there was a bit of shakiness going on. I don't know if you've ever been there on one of your plane journeys. There was a bit of it. Was, it can't have been. Really turbulence? Can you get turbulence that close to the ground? I don't know. Anyway, this was not a very steady plane landing. What was it that gave us stability in that moment? I don't know much about plane travel, but I know one of the reasons it's got two wings is to give it a sense of balance. And as believers in Jesus Christ, God has gifted us with these truths about himself that give us a sense of contented balance. When your world is trying to shake you like John's disciples into activity. Do more in order to be great. Strive after greatness. God says, stretch out your wings into my sovereignty and my goodness. 
the truth that I am in control of your life. That is that great hymn in Christ alone says, Jesus commands my destiny. That's what John's saying to his disciples. I'm not going to let my destiny and my life be, be dictated by you guys because you've got a warped view of what it means to be great right now. I'm going to rest in the truth. A person can receive nothing except that which is given him from heaven, and I'm happy with that. My lot from God is right and just for me. And then resting as well, stretching out our souls into the truth that he's good. Do you realize, friends, how good it is that our God is both sovereign and good? Just imagine for a second, we had a sovereign God who was utterly unpredictable in his character. Or imagine for a second, we had a good God who was in a battle against other cosmic deities for the rule of the universe. Both would leave us in a place not of contentment, but of shakiness, wouldn't they? But we have a God who is both, who is kind and who's committed to us as his children. All things will work together for the good of those who love him. And we have a God who is sovereign, who can deliver on that, has the power to give us what is right. John finds true greatness in being content in what God gives. This is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? We stop our striving and our activity to make ourselves right with God. And we, like John, won't be shaken by the world. We just say, I am resting in Jesus. Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my greatness. I am content in him. He is enough for me. And I lack nothing that I don't need, that I need, because I've got everything in him. Now, let's just apply this really practically to our lives. What were the disciples of John trying to get him to do here? What is the killer of contentment? Comparison. Comparison is the killer of contentment. If you want to live a life of contentment, you better stop looking from side to side. You better stop looking across the Jordan to the other side of the river. What, what's going on over there? What, what are they doing? Oh, they've got a bigger following than us. Comparison kills Contentment. Do you remember Jesus when he's walking with his disciples on the shore of the Lake of Galilee after he's resurrected from the dead and he commissions Peter and he says, Peter, I've got a job for you to do. Feed my sheep, tend to my lambs. And Peter, walking with Jesus, who his soul should be content in, the Son of God. He just received a commission from the Son of God. And Peter does what all of us are prone to do. He looks over his shoulder and he sees John. He says, Lord, what about that guy? What's, what's your story for his life? What, what are you going to do with him? Because I'm not 100% sure in what you called me to, so let me just hear what, what he's doing and see if I can get a bit of that in my... Peter's in a comparison mode. What does Jesus say to him? Peter, what's that to you? You follow me. We are called to follow Jesus, to have our feet planted in his sovereignty and goodness, to be content in his plan for our lives, not his plan for other people's lives. As Aslan says to Shasta in The Horse and His Boy, I tell no one any story but their own. God is committed to working out his plan and his story in your life. 
You don't need to look around, compare your lot, get discouraged. Because what comparison ultimately does is it, it, it warps our identity and what Christ has said of us in the gospel. It either puts us in a position of superiority over people. Oh, look at that. Look, hey, we're, we're better than that ceremonial washing crowd. Or it puts us in a position of inferiority, of, of striving after more influence, more stuff, more possessions, more money. But if our souls are content in Christ... In that place, we find rest. In that place, we find greatness. Why has this been so huge for me? I'm just going to be a bit honest and personal this morning. Why has this been so big for me in church planting? Because as you can imagine, in the adventure of church planting, there can be a sense of pressure. We've got to get this thing off the ground. We've got to gather in crowds. We've got to make it happen. Activity, activity, activity. And don't get me wrong. Wait for point two. There's going to be some encouragement towards gospel activity. But if in my heart I really think it depends on me, and if in my heart I'm really a slave to numbers and to crowds and to influence, then I will live a sad and sorry life. And in the process, I will forfeit what God has called greatness. A few years ago, God really taught me a massive lesson. He pointed me to Jesus, praying before he goes to the cross, his last meal with his disciples. And Jesus, of all people, knew the movement, the global movement, the thousands, the millions, the billions that would come to faith in him. And yet in that moment, what does he pray with his disciples? He simply says to the Father, Father, I have been faithful to keep those you have given me. He doesn't pray, Father, why didn't you give me 120, not 12? <laughs> Father, why didn't you give me 1,000, not 12? No, he says, Father, in your wisdom, you gave me 12, and I have kept them. I'm content with what you have given me. And I believe this is key for you as a church. True greatness for the church is not always striving and striving and striving, but being an oasis of rest in a world that strives. Imagine if you could be the kind of church community where those running after greatness in this world in Cheltenham, and I know there'll be thousands of them, come in and find a countercultural community where... Yes, you might have worldly success in your life and that, that God might be blessing you in areas of your career and that's great and family and all these things and yet they come into this environment where, wait a second, the joy of these people is not attached to their accolades. The joy of these people is not attached to their achievements. The joy of these people, they might have some of this stuff but it's, it's not attached to their influence. The joy of these people is attached to Jesus. And as a result, when turbulence hits their lives, they're steady, they're content. They can say with the Apostle Paul, in plenty or in lack, I have learned the secret of being content because I can do all things through Christ. Christ is my contentment. True greatness is being content in all that God gives you, in God's plan for your life in Jesus. Secondly and finally, True greatness 
means making much of Jesus. See, John, though he is firmly rooted, there is an activity to John's life. He's not completely passive and just stopped in the ground saying, we'll see what God does. No, John is a man of great ambition. In these next verses, we get a window into what fuels and fires John's heart. And in the process, we get a window into what it means to to have truly great ambitions for our lives. He says, you yourselves can testify. I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend attends to the bridegroom, that's John, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. In a world obsessed with pushing to the front of the queue, John shows us a different way. John shows us kingdom greatness. John shows us a more joyful and liberating way living for the glory of Jesus and not our own. See, look how, look how settled John is in his identity and his purpose here. Wouldn't you love to have this kind of settledness that when people come to you with pressures, you can say, guys, hold up. I'm not the Messiah. <laughs> I'm not the Savior. So much of what's wrong in my life, I'm sure you, some of you might be able to join me in this, is I've got a bit of a messianic complex. Deep down, I feel like I'm the savior of the world. I'm the savior of my little patch of the world. It's all on me. It depends on me. I've got to fix it. I've got to control things. Not John. John is utterly unshaken in his commitment to second place because he has got the name of your church right. God first. It's Jesus first. One of the places I've seen this um, is in the football team that I support. Now, this is going to be a bit of a a bizarre interjection into the message halfway through, but um, for some reason, when I was about eight years old, I made the very strange choice, despite zero connections to this place, to support Leicester City Football Club. I had literally, a, a kid growing up in Abergavenny, this beautiful, like, Brecon Beacons town in Wales, and my friends were supporting Man United and Chelsea and Arsenal. And for some bizarre reason, I'm sure it says something psychoanalytically about who I am or something, I decide I'm going to support some average team in the Midlands. And you can imagine, if you know anything about football, um, what the majority of my football supporting life has been like as a result. It's just been a tale of frustration and yo-yo. We're in the Premier League, we get relegated. We're in the Premier League, we get relegated. We never finish above 10th when we finish 8th. Wow, what an amazing achievement. Until a couple of years ago, when my beloved team, Leicester City, did the impossible, the unthinkable, this average little team from the Midlands won the Premier League. And... Charlotte, my wife and I, I dragged her along to this, went to Leicester on the day they lifted the trophy. We didn't have tickets, we just wanted to soak up the atmosphere. And so we just watched the game, their final game of the season, in a little Leicestershire pub, and just soaked up all the atmosphere. And I can remember seeing the celebrations of these players. And there you had 
Jamie Vardy, goal scorer extraordinaire. And you had Riyad Mahrez, a, a wonder kid from Algeria who just was an amazingly talented player. And you had N'Golo Kante, this little uh, French wizard who could just do anything on the football pitch. But amidst the celebrations, you also had someone with one of the most English-sounding names you'll ever come across, Danny Simpson. And there was no one celebrating the victory of Leicester that day more than Danny Simpson. And yet, what had he done all season? He'd not scored any goals. He'd not got any of the accolades or headlines. He'd played a few games at right back, which, you know, that for, if you know anything about football, that's not a particularly glamorous position. He just did his job. And in seeing the celebration, the joy of Danny Simpson, we see a bit of John the Baptist's heart and attitude here. See, too often, we want our own glory, don't we? Even in church and ministry, we want it to be about us, our fame. We want to get to the front of the queue in our work or whatever. John had discovered true greatness and true joy in being second place. See, friends, you don't have to be the main part of what God's doing in the world. Just be on the team. Just be on the team. Just be, as John said, I'm just a sent one. I'm not the Messiah. I'm here to point the way to him. I'm like the friend of the bridegroom. My joy is found not in being the big part in a tiny little film about little old me's life. My joy is being a small part in the great epic movie, Jesus Christ the Savior. That is That is where we find our joy. That is where we find true greatness in being wrapped up in Christ's story and living for Christ's glory. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering, why am I not content in my life? Why do I so often feel like I've got to get more in this area or that area? Can I bring a gentle challenge this morning? Could it be because deep down you're living for you? And could it be that in turning your attention afresh this morning to Jesus and recognizing him for who he is in his wonder and his glory. As the God-man, as the one who died, the only perfect one who could die for our sins, the one who got raised up and conquered death and who right now is seated in all authority at the Father's right hand, the one who deserves the worship of angels and all creation, the one who spoke galaxies into existence, the one who one day is coming soon and will put this world to right in a world that has gone so far wrong. If you're wrapped up in the glory of Jesus, all of a sudden you can find rest and contentment in your life because the greatest thing that could ever happen to you has already happened. You've become one with Christ. You've been accepted into God's family. Friends, everything else from there on in is a massive big bonus. A growing church plant is a massive bonus, but it's not the main thing. A growing career, it's a great bonus. Give thanks to God for it, but it's not the main thing. A happy family, what an amazing bonus to enjoy Yes, to, be, to, to, to enjoy the blessing of, but it's not the main thing. The greatest thing that has ever happened, that will ever happen to you if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, has already happened. And in that, you can find rest, joy, and contentment. 
John says, it's like I'm a bridegroom's friend. It's like I'm the best man. I've been a best man a few times. Um, Don't recommend it. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done, trying to herd a crowd of ushers and other things. But I know from being best man, one of your jobs is to get out of the way. To let the attention be on the bride and the bridegroom. John says, I'm giving my life to seeing Jesus the bridegroom meet the bride, fallen, broken human beings. And I'm giving my life to living for his glory, making much of him, shining the light on Jesus so that more people would find their way into bridal relationship with Jesus Christ. Is that your joy? Are you living for something else? The call of John the Baptist, the call of God to us this morning is, Reorient your life around that because that will make you most happy. That will bring you the greater sense of being part of something great. Playing a small role in the big thing that God is doing in the world. One of my heroes is a guy called George Whitfield. I believe he was born not far from here in Gloucester. If there was any man who could have ever had claim to some form of human greatness and celebration, particularly in the Christian world, it was George Whitfield, preached to hundreds of thousands of people across the course of his life in the 18th century, where microphones weren't a thing. He would stand in a field and see thousands of people come to faith as he shared about Jesus. He would travel across the ocean, and he started orphanages in, in America and and. The church that I grew up in, Abergavenny, is called Whitfield Presbyterian Church. In honor and homage of this man, you could say he's a great man. He he deserves to be celebrated. Look at all he's accomplished and all he's done. But listen to his own words. A modern-day John the Baptist. He says this, Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me. Doesn't care about his legacy. If by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted, let Jesus be our all in all, so that he is preached. I care not who is uppermost. I know my place, even to be the servant of all, and I am content to wait till the judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. And after I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies GW, won't even give himself his name. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. (laughs) Utterly committed to the glory and the fame of Jesus, even at his own expense. Is our joy wrapped up in this? He must become greater. I must become less. I don't think I'm overstepping the mark by saying your, your church exists for the greatness of Jesus not for your own. For the greatness of Jesus in the depth of your heart's affections to him and for the greatness of Jesus in the breadth of your mission to this town. See, this is where inactivity is not enough. This is where living for the fame and glory of Jesus becomes a great cause to give our lives to because we don't just stand still and say, my feet are planted firmly in the sovereignty and goodness of God and I'm content. We say from that place now, I'm going to go and make him great. In the breadth of our mission, I'm going to 
commit my life in my little corner, in my little responsibilities, with the little things that God has given me, whether family or work or whatever other influence he's given me, I'm going to use that, leverage that, to ensure that more people become the bride of the bridegroom. So that on that final day when Jesus returns, he might come to a truly cleansed and purified bride made up of people from every nation and tribe and tongue with a great representation of people who live their lives here on earth in Cheltenham because you gave your lives to this great cause, seeing Jesus glorified. Simple message this morning, simple application. Are you finding your contentment and rest in God? Therein lies true greatness. This morning, for some of us, we may need just to commit to stop our striving. To let God work out his plan in our lives. And then for some of us, maybe we need to get back on the the pony today. We need to look at our lives and have a long, honest, hard look and say, hmm, I remember those days. Back in my teens or my 20s or my 30s, whatever it was, when I was going for it in passionate devotion to Jesus. What has happened since? I've begun to believe what the world says about greatness. And I need to turn and do the things I did at first. And there may be for some of us the invitation this morning is come and find true greatness in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn from your self-absorbed little life Turn towards the great Savior who died for your sins, who makes a way for you to be welcomed with God and be at home with him in eternity. What could be greater than that? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.